Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Romans chapter two. Uh, we are actually five weeks. Can you believe it? We're five weeks into our sermon series called uh, By Faith Alone, and we're traveling through the entire book of Romans. And if you believe it or not, we're five weeks into it, but we're barely getting to chapter two. Um, and so I kind of want to give you an overview of kind of where we've been uh, so that you can kind of understand where we're going to go today, um, just in case you haven't been with us, and it's totally fine. Um, I just want to give you an overview so you can kind of understand where we're going to land in uh, today's text. So the book of Romans is a letter uh, that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Rome. Um, and so when we read this book, uh, you and I, we open our Bibles and we'll see big numbers. Chapter one, verse, and we'll see the verses, and then we'll see chapter two. Well, when Paul's writing this, he doesn't include chapter and verse. That came much later. So this is actually a thought, a letter that is being continually read. In fact, this letter was meant to be read in one sitting. And we're taking 30 weeks to go over it. So, uh, so anyways, with that being said, um, just so that you can understand the mindset. Now, um, in the first couple of weeks, we explored chapter one. And just to kind of break that down for you a little bit, in chapter one, verse one through 17, a couple of things happen. So Paul kind of introduces himself. Um, he introduces the gospel of God, um, and he actually refers to the gospel of God as God's righteousness and God's power to save. Amen. And then in verses 18 through 32, kind of Paul begins to break the gospel down by laying out for us a systematic theological worldview regarding the wrath of God against the sinfulness of mankind. And it's here where we learn that in order for us to appreciate the good news, because the gospel means good news, in order for us to appreciate the good news, we first had to come to grips with and be confronted by the bad news. Now, what was this bad news? Well, the bad news, it's not culturally acceptable to say this, but it's biblical, and here's the bad news. God is angry with us. And a lot of us, that word anger triggers us because we've been in homes where anger was displayed in a very sinful way. But God's anger is his righteous anger, his just anger, his pure anger, and I'll tell you why he's angry. God is angry with humanity because we have rejected him as creator. And as a, result of, as a result of rejecting God, once you've rejected God, then you replace God. And we learned last week that we're all worshipers. Everyone worships. Even if you're in this room and you consider yourself an atheist, you still worship something. You give your time, talent, and treasure to something. You find joy, peace, and satisfaction in something. And so when we, when we reject God, we also replace God. And that's what we call idolatry. And so the gospel says, hey, I've got good news for you, but before you can really appreciate the good news, I have to break down the bad news. And the bad news is God is angry with you because you have rejected him and replaced him with idols. And as a result of that, Paul concludes chapter one by telling us what this looks like. He says, first of all, mankind exchanges God in the mind. 
We exchange the truth for a lie. And then it says it goes from the mind, it goes from the head, it goes to the heart, because what we believe, we will worship. And then he says it doesn't just stop at the heart, but ultimately it culminates with the hands, because what we believe, we will worship, and what we worship, we will ultimately do. And so this is where Paul brings this up, and he says humanity has made three exchanges. We've exchanged God in the head, we've exchanged God in the heart, and ultimately we exchange him in our hands, and we serve the God that we desire to serve, made in our own image with our hands. So though Paul, at the end of chapter one, gives us this long laundry list of evils. He says, as a result, mankind does this. And so I want to read that to you one more time, um, and then we're going to kind of cross over into verse one of chapter two. And again, this is a letter, and this was meant to be read uh, kind of in one sitting, but we're taking it bite size by bite size. So I just want to make sure you understand that. So with that being said, we're going to read the end of chapter one, verse 28, and we're going to read all the way through chapter two, verse one, and then we'll pause briefly. So remember, man has made a head exchange, then he's made a heart exchange. As a result, he makes an exchange with his hands. And so listen to how far humanity has fallen. Paul writes this. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Jeez, what a way to end the chapter, huh, Paul? But then he goes on to chapter two, verse one. He says this, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. And this is, I really want us to key in on this verse. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Let's stop there. I want want to show you something. There is a shift in thought taking place between chapter one and chapter two. And you have to pause to really see it. There's a shift in thought. Now, with this shift in thought also comes a shift in audience. Let me explain that a little bit. This is really key. Paul goes from talking about, are you ready? Paul goes from talking about the bad people out there to the good people in here. He goes from talking about the bad people out there to the good people in here. Now, let me explain. There is a real sense that as Paul concludes his list of evil, that there is a group of people reading this list and thinking to themselves, not me. Not us, Paul. We're God's chosen people. Those people are lost and we're nothing like them. Go get them, Paul. Those heathens deserve God's wrath. And the reason why there is a, Paul is acutely aware that this might be taking place because he's writing a letter to the church in Rome, and the church in Rome is a diverse church. In the Roman church, there are Gentiles and Greeks, but there are also Jews. And so Paul knows that as he's writing this letter, 
reading, after reading chapter one, the Jews are going to be like, tell those heathens, Paul, get them. And so in chapter two, Paul now looks at the Jews and he says, wait a minute, you're not off the hook neither. You're not off the hook neither. You think your religiosity is saving you when it's actually condemning you too. Why? Because God is impartial judge and you are a hypocrite. That's what Paul's saying. In fact, if I had to give a title to this entire message, and if I had to give a title to chapter two, it would say this, God is an impartial judge and you are a hypocrite. Let's pray. <laughs> that was heavy. Will you pray for me as I pray for you? Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for everyone who's come and made it in this room today to hear your word. Thank you for the beautiful baby dedication that we had. Um, Lord, I pray a blessing over those hearts and minds in this room, and I pray that your word would do what it's been set out to accomplish. And we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Believe it or not, once upon a time, uh, about 30 pounds lighter, uh, I used to be a youth pastor. Um, amen. Um, I used to be a youth pastor before I was a lead pastor. And when I first took over the youth group, um, I noticed that it was filled mostly with kids whose parents actually attended the church. Um, in fact, at the time, there was probably like maybe 10 to 12 kids kind of coming to church regularly when I first took over the youth ministry. And again, the, the, most of those kids, if not all of them, were kids whose parents actually were regular attenders of the church. So at that time, before she was my girlfriend, uh, Jamila and I um, got together and we began to say, I asked her, I said, hey, you want to, you want to, you know, <laughs> you guys know, hey, you want to do youth ministry together or what? You know, like that's, that's the way Christian guys who don't know what they're doing try to ask people out, right? <laughs> so you want to like pray and read the Bible together? You're laughing, but that's holy. That's how, some of y'all need to learn how to do that, amen? So, okay, anyway, back up that my soapbox. <clears throat> so I say, you know, you want to do youth ministry with me? And I noticed that like 90% of the ministry was girls. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to need a girl to do this with me in order to make real impact. And so Jamila, of course, said yes, because I was fly. And, um, <laughs> you know, not because the Lord told her. So uh, I can go off on a whole tangent about our dating in this, but I'll save that for another time. Uh, by the way, she's sick this morning, so please keep my wife in prayer, okay? Anyways, I always put her on blast. But, uh, so Jamila and I decided that we were, gonna, we were gonna disciple the kids that were already there, but we also wanted to kind of put a plan in place with the intention to kind of reach teenagers kind of from the neighborhood and the surrounding schools. Now, in the past, our youth group had did that, like several years before, but for a while that had kind of stopped, and so we kind of wanted to put a plan in place um, to kind of reach the kids from the neighborhood and the surrounding high schools. Now, I want to be really clear with you. Our pastor was super supportive all the way through, like super, was such a huge support for us. And most of the church was really amazing, but there were these like occasional parents that were not on board with this idea. You see, in their minds, there was a definitive difference between the church kids and the street kids. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some differences. But in essence, here's kind of what they were really saying. Our kids are special. Our kids are good. Our kids love God. Those kids are sinners, 
those kids are bad. Those kids hate God. And here was the fear. Are you ready? If those kids come in and mix with our kids, then our good kids, see the quotes, from the church will get contaminated by the bad kids from the street. So there was a fear. There was a fear there. And you want to know something that's really crazy? Side note. Um, in my 10 years of youth pastoring, some of you were actually in my youth ministry. It's always the kids off the street that showed more passion for Jesus than the kids in the church. Someone, they used to ask me, hey, uh, hey, Philip, you're a youth pastor. Like, how do, you, how do you get your kids excited about Jesus? I was like, go bring some kids in off the streets, right? Now, don't get me wrong. We all had problems. We all had problems together. We, me too. We were all problems. There were different unique problems. But nonetheless, um, there was this fear there that if the two mixed, that somehow there was going to be like this contamination and the good kids were going to become bad. Now, this is what the Jews kind of felt about the Gentiles. Are you with me? And, and I, I want to warn us as a church, if the gospel is not the central message of this church, this is how our church can come off to the world too. It's kind of like them versus us, right? It's the sinners versus the saints, right? And so we have to make sure that we keep the gospel as the central message of our ministry. So with that in mind, I want you to now listen to Paul turn his attention to those people who think that they're in. Let's continue to read. Chapter two, and I'll read verse one over again, and we'll read all the way to 11, and then we'll land the message there. Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So saying, y'all that were judging that list that I just gave, now I'm coming to you. Paul says, for in passing judgment on another, guess what? You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightfully falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself will escape the judgment of God? Paul says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now look at verse six. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, I'm going to say something that is shocking, and I do it all the time, so if you come a lot, you already are ready for this, but when it's shocking, you're never really ready. I'm going to say something that's shocking and that some of you may not like, but nonetheless, is an important truth for you to hear. You ready? Here it is. 
the most deceived person in this room today may not be the most immoral person. There are some of you, you know you're a sinner. In fact, it's hard to even come to church. You're so keenly aware of your mistakes. But there are some of you in here that think you're good. The most deceived person in this room today may not be the most immoral person. The most deceived person in this room today just might be the person who thinks they have it all together with God in comparison to others. Don't get too excited, those of you who were rebuked last week, okay? Because I know right away, everyone's the Pharisee clap. You ever heard of the Pharisee clap? The Pharisee clap is when you're amening and clapping for the preacher because he ain't talking about you, but he's talking about your husband right next to you. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Right? And, and, and I remember, I'm going to go there. I did this thing on, I did TRL in the summer, right? And I did, on, I did on alcohol and Christianity. And man, I never heard the drinkers get so excited in my life. They're like, yeah, you tell them. I'm like, mm, I don't know if you're listening all the way through the message, right? And so here's what I want to say. There's the Pharisee clap, but then there's the sinner clap too. Like, oh, tell them Pharisees, right? But I want to know, Paul says, both of you are without excuse. Whether you're in blatant sin, Paul's wrath, or God's wrath is coming. But today, Paul isn't excusing those who act like they have it all together. And I want you to hear me out. Your religiosity and moralism will condemn you before God just as much as your immorality will. Your religiosity and moralism will condemn you before God just as much as your irreligion and morality will. Now, here's what I want to do for the rest of the day. I'm going to give you three reasons why religion can't save you. Three reasons why your religiosity can't save you. Now, if you're taking notes, I'll tell you up front where we're going. Reason number one, religion makes you, makes us self-reliant. Self-reliant. Three reasons why your religion won't save you. Number one, religion makes us self-reliant. Number two, religion makes us hypocritical. And number three, religion makes us entitled. Entitled. So let's get to that first one. Religion makes us self-reliant. You see, in a world, right, where self-reliance is viewed as a sign of empowerment. Are we living in a world where if you can do it on your own, if you're independent, you can do it yourself, that is empowerment, yes? We live in a world that praises self-reliance. So in a world that praises self-reliance as a sign of empowerment, then why would Scripture warn us against it in our religion? Well, I'll tell you why. Because if I can save myself, then I have no need for Jesus, to be self-reliant is to oppose the cross because everything about the cross shouts, you are dead and Jesus can save you. But a self-reliant person would say, no, 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 I can do this on my own. Jesus didn't have to die, which means you nullify the cross. You see, a self-reliant person places confidence in their good works rather than in the work of Christ. So they reason, I know that I'm right with God because look how holy or look how moral that I am. Now, this is a false sense of security that ultimately will turn into pride. See, over the years, I've seen this played out in people's lives in a few different ways. Are you ready for these? The shoe fits, wear them, but thank God the Holy Spirit is here. And just like last week, some of you had to wear some shoes and you had to repent. This week, you should wear some shoes and repent as well. Are you ready for how this is played out? Number one, the Pharisee Christian. What do I mean by that? Oh, they love to quote scriptures. 
They memorize the scriptures. They call out sins and they boast about their prayer lives, but they never demonstrate real compassion or true humility. Just because you have the scriptures memorized means nothing. The Pharisee Christian. Number two, how about the political Christian? Mm, Here we go. And that season is coming, isn't it? It's coming like a storm. And it's going to be very polarizing. And people are going to be triggered in this church. The political Christian. Ready? Are you ready for this? These people think that their preferred political party is synonymous with Christianity. I don't know how many times I have to tell you, Jesus is not American. And he certainly isn't Democrat. And guess what? He's not Republican. I know that hurts. You know what's really crazy? Come election time, you know how you know someone's a political Christian? Come election time, their Facebook is full of rhetoric. Will you fact check? I got to get off on on the, you know, can you stop reposting things that you're unsure about? That just, you know what? I love Jesus, y'all. And I just can't take it when we are posting things and we're Christians and we come off so unintelligent because we're just posting, 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 posting. I'm a Christian now, and you might be my friend, and I love you, but I'm going to tell you the reputation of Jesus means a lot to me. I'm trying to save folks and bring them into the gospel. Not, I'm not trying to segregate. Let their sins do that. I get that. At, at, at some point, the gospel will split. It will. It will cause a division. But let the gospel cause it, not you. Some of you are trying to help the gospel. All right, getting back up here. I got to get back here. You know that's a one, right? When he goes down, you're like, okay, I get it. Here's what's really, you want to know what's really crazy about these like political Christians? Here's what just messes me up. Um, Not only do they not fact check, but they preach their candidate more than their savior. Yeah, do that. That felt good. I mean, really? When's the last time you shared Jesus at your workplace? But come political season, you're sharing whatever you're sharing. And you know what? You have a right to have a stance, guys. You have a right to choose and pray and look through the, and look through the different, um, uh, the different uh, views that are there and look through the political parties. You have a right to do this. America has given you that right. Now, whatever you think about America... That's another subject, but you have this right, and we are, as Christians, we should be good stewards of this right. So I'm not knocking that. I'm not even knocking one or the other. If you notice, I'm being very careful because I realize that there are Christians in this room that vote Democrat and Christians in this room that vote Republican. And until we understand that, we won't understand heaven, every tribe, tongue, nation. Do you understand that? Okay, I know, I know, I know, I get it. Some of you might not come back next week. That's okay. But I see people come election time And they are the greatest presenters of their political gospel, but haven't shared Jesus once. Wear it. Wear it. That's good. Let the Holy Spirit just cut you a little bit. That's good, because that means there's change. Repentance, that's what Christ wants to bring you to. Okay. How about the American Christian syndrome? This is another one I can just go on and on about. Let me tell you what the American Christian syndrome is, right? America thinks that we're we're just a Christian nation. We're a Christian nation. Right? We're a Christian nation, and because I was born in this nation, and because my family went to church at some point, I'm a Christian too. So on Facebook and all these other places, like I'm going to check the box of Christian. You're Christian box checkers, right? But the reality is, you're not. You're not a follower of Christ, and that's okay. Like, I get it. I mean, it's not okay. Like, I hope that the gospel would compel you, but what I want to do is lay down the facade. That's not, that's not what it is. 
And here, let me tell you what the American Christian syndrome is, right? Here, here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing that most Americans have brought, even some that say, well, I'm no longer, because it's called the rise of the nuns is what they're called. Not nuns like in the, co- the convent, but that I should say nuns. Yeah, nuns is a better word, nuns. And what is it now when people say, what's your religious affiliation? Nuns now is being, is rising. That's becoming the major, the, uh, one of the major rising kind of checkpoints for people. So let me explain this. Um, you mark none. Basically, do you have a religious affiliation if like census comes by back in the day? Christian, 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 Muslim. Oh, no, none. That's, that's on the rise right now. Are you with me? But here's, here's what's carried over from this kind of American Christianity. Here's what they think. Well, I'm a good person. Right? I'm a good person. I'm not perfect. <laughs> but when I stand before God, he'll say, you know what? You did your best. And that's all that matters. You did your best, and that's, that's all that matters. I want to tell you something. That'll send you to hell quickly. Notice in all three of these scenarios, the individual and the example, and here's where I want you to see this. Listen, please. In all three of these scenarios, the individual in each example is finding their righteousness in something else other than Christ. You see that? They're finding their identity and their righteousness in something else and other than Christ. Almost as if God is gonna let you in or let you out based on how you voted. I'm gonna tell you something, God is not gonna pull up your voting records. (laughs) Number two, not only does your religion, your religiosity make you self-reliant, number two is guess what? Self-reliant ultimately turns into hypocrite. Makes you hypocritical. Paul says that. He's self-reliant people. He doesn't say it verbatim, but this is the essence of what he's saying. Self-reliant people find fault in others, but ignore the very same faults in themselves. Hear me out. Yes, yes, yes. The irreligious of chapter one deserve the wrath of God. Nobody can deny the list of evil that I read. But yes, the religious of chapter two deserve the same wrath. Why? Why? Because one of the fundamental temptations of our human nature is to condemn in others what we condone in ourselves. Don't we do that? I think I've said this many. Don't we love to like point out in others what we're okay with? We, we give permission to ourselves. One of the fundamental temptations of our human nature is to condemn in others what we condone in ourselves. There's nothing worse than a sin hunter who has failed to hunt the sin in themselves. Nothing worse than a sin hunter who has failed to hunt the sin in themselves. This is a super important note I want you to get. When Paul warns us not to judge, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we can't examine other people and lovingly call them to repentance and accountability. You get that? So Paul's not saying, well, don't hold people accountable. Don't examine people's lives. Well, if we never held anybody accountable, we never examined anybody's lives, we would be a really messed, it would be a messed up world. We must hold people accountable. And so Paul's not telling us that we can't do that. So then what does Paul mean? Here's what he means. It means that we can't write them off and dismiss them and make the final call over their lives. Why? Because the very thing you point out as ugly in others is the same thing that's ugly in you. You hear me? 
The very thing that you point out is ugly in others is the same thing that is ugly in you. You say, I don't murder, but you get angry and hate others. You say, I'm not violent, but you hold grudges, you ignore people, and you fail to forgive. You say, I've never had an affair, but you look at pornography and lust in your heart. You say, I've never made an idol with my hands, but you're constantly putting other things before God. Religiosity produces self-reliance, and self-reliance produces hypocrites. And a hypocrite points out the sin in others, but excuses the sin in themselves because they become entitled. This leads us to number three. Finally, religion makes us entitled. I want you guys to listen to the definition of entitlement for a moment. The definition of entitlement is this, believing oneself to be inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. I should have just said privileged. You see, there's no doubt that when Paul penned, when he wrote chapter one, his Jewish audience was distancing themselves as they read it. Yeah, that's the pagan world. Are you with me? You see, why? Why would they do that? Because they were what? They were different. They were God's chosen people. They were stewards of his law. No other nation and no other people group could make these kinds of claims but the Jews. So it felt right for them to sit on the judgment seat with God and point their fingers at the rest of the world. But they missed the point entirely. We may not be ethnic Jews in here today, but as followers of Christ and members of his church, this point is very much for you and I too. You see, the unique place God has given us through his son should make us more accountable to God, not less. The unique place God has given to us through his son should make us more humble, and not more full of pride. As a result, and this is vital, please hear me out. The core value of a Christian's life, the most visible thing the world should see about us, it's not our works or how good we are. It's not our gifts or how powerful we are. It's not our leadership or how blessed our lives are. What should be most evident to the world and central to our lives as followers of Christ is our willingness to humble ourselves and repent. Write this down. Repentance and faith is not just how we enter God's kingdom, but it's also how we grow in it and stay in it. Repentance and faith is not just how we enter God's kingdom, but it's how we grow in it and stay in it. Amen? Do you know we will never move beyond repentance? You know you'll never get so mature in Christ that you stop repenting? The minute you do that, you're into religiosity, and the gospel needs to pull you out of that thing. We will never mature beyond repentance. Well, why? Why, Pastor Phil? Because we will never move beyond the gospel. 
We are saved. And this is so important. Hear me out. We are saved by faith alone. Are you ready for this? We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. I'm gonna go into kind of our final point here. We are saved, listen, by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Let me break that down for you. By faith alone means that in order for us to be saved from God's wrath, we must place our trust in the work of Christ on the cross, right? Not in your own works. Not how many times I go to church, not how many times I, I, I pray, not how many good things that I've done, or I'm not a bad person. When you do that, all you are doing is justifying yourself and saying that God is looking at all of my deeds. Some of us, when, when someone comes to you and asks you, well, how do you know you're saved? Well, I think when I get to heaven, God takes the good stuff and the bad stuff. That's religiosity. You need to get out, trash that right now. That's American Christianity. That's not it. It's not about how good you are. We are saved not by our works, but by the work of Christ on the cross. Are you with me? And so that's what it means to be by faith alone. In other words, I don't put my trust in myself, but I look to the cross of Jesus Christ and I put my faith, my hope, and my trust in Jesus. My salvation is based upon him, his death and his resurrection, not my good works. Otherwise, I'm in for it. Are you with me? Now, here's what happens. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, a couple of things happens. A transfer takes place, right? Number one is when you put your faith in Jesus, your sin that deserves the wrath of God now is placed on top of Jesus. And so when you see Jesus on the cross, you know how you wear that little cross, but you're not quite sure what it means? That's religiosity too. But now when you look at that cross, you know what that means? That means as Jesus was hanging there, he was taking the wrath that you deserve. You see that? What you deserve because of your sin, when you put your faith in Jesus at the cross, he absorbs it all for you. So that when you stand before God, guess what? Two things happen. Not only does your sin get placed on top of Jesus, but then his righteousness gets placed over you. Isn't that amazing? So, so look, it's not just good to get my sin out, but now I need his righteousness so that when you stand before the Lord, guess what? He doesn't see your sin, but he sees Jesus's robes of righteousness over you. Isn't that beautiful? By faith alone. By faith alone. Now watch, and here's really, what do I mean by this though? By faith alone, but not by faith that what? Is alone. What do I mean by that? This means that a person who has genuinely placed their trust in Jesus should begin to produce evidence of this faith. I can't see your faith, but there's evidence of your faith that allows me to see that it's genuine. Faith is the root, and it should produce what? Holiness as the fruit. Listen closely. I don't mean perfection. This is not perfection. God is not asking for any of us to walk perfectly. Why? Because we can't. But there should be a general trend of fruit being produced in your life as an evidence of God's spirit at work in a heart that is yielded to Jesus. So if you're not a forgiving person, 
When you give your heart to Jesus, you place your faith in him, guess what? It doesn't mean you start forgiving everybody overnight, but it means you start to slowly begin to grow in that. I wanna conclude with an illustration, invite the team to come up. I'll never forget, kind of, it was like really simple, powerful advice um, that I received regarding parenting. And to be honest with you, I was like, man, this thing can go everywhere. Parenting or marriage, but even in our own faith walk with Jesus. And I think it's just so important that I felt like I wanted to end it here. Um, But the advice was this, uh, if you want your wife, <laughs> your children, um, if you want your husband, your children, if you want them to trust you, right? If you want them to really trust you. See, I was kind of born and raised in a time, it was kind of towards the end of it, but like becoming a pastor was like this difficult thing and everyone like, you don't wanna do that, right? You know, and our, you know, we, were, we were told, hey, don't marry a pastor, don't become a pastor, <laughs> right? Okay, two people laughed. They don't want to offend people. But um, there were all these things that came with being a pastor, right? You don't make no money. It wasn't successful. I mean, all that stuff. I get that. Um, but one of the things that people were also afraid of was, and if you grew up in church at any way, you might remember this, but remember they used to always like make fun of like the PKs, call them PKs. What's a PK? It means pastor's kid. Some of you are PKs in here, <laughs> right? Some of you are like, mm. Right, and here's what they used to say about the PKs. They used to say back in the day, man, how come the PKs are the worst kids? Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? Some of you are the worst kid. <laughs> You're like, in fact, my dad don't even know I'm at church today, right? I just went, okay. But like they would always say like, oh, the PKs are the worst kids, right? Or the PKs are gonna abandon God or the PKs are gonna go through it hard. And, and, and so there was above all these other reasons not to become a pastor. You don't make any money. You have it hard, you know, all these other things. The other thing was like, well, you, you have a kid, there's gonna be so much pressure on that kid to look and be the best because that's, that's the pastor's kid. Look at the pastor's kid. Look what he's doing, right? Um, and so I know for me in particular, this was always really important now that I have a son and uh, there were a couple of things that I think have contributed to the reason why PKs are sometimes get a little angry with the church and with God. Well, sometimes because, you know, maybe dad loved the church more than he loved the house, right? And that's what something I always say, like, I love you guys, but the church won't be the mistress in my family. It just won't. Um, but as a father now, who I'm a pastor, who also wants my, I wanna honor my wife, I wanna honor my son, um, one of the greatest things that I can do, and I wanna just kinda, the fathers and mothers in here, one of the greatest things that I can do for my family is not be a perfect father, is not try to be perfect. One of the greatest things that I can do is be a father that repents. Repent. A father that repents, a husband that repents, a wife that repents so important for our kids to know that we're sorry, that we apologize, to look them in the eye. Whenever we're too angry, whenever we flew off the handle, whenever we said something to mom or to dad we shouldn't have said, so important that your child not only sees you forgive your spouse, but that you would look your child in the eye and say, will you forgive me? Are you with me? 
If you want your wife and your children to trust you, don't become a perfect man, become a repenting man. Now, what does it mean to repent? Are you ready? Admit when you're wrong, regularly say I'm sorry, and here's the key, learn to move further away from doing it again. Because we know an abusive person says they're sorry and then does it again and again and again. And they use sorry as a form of manipulation. But repentance, true repentance, is not just to allow the pain of your mistake to hurt you enough to be able to come forward and break through your pride because nobody wants to say, I'm sorry, but then look someone in the eye and genuinely be, genuinely in your heart, be contrite at the fact that you hurt them. And in that genuine contriteness, you, I'm sorry without excuses. And then that sorry is followed by a man or a woman who's continuing to grow further away from those mistakes. You hear what I'm saying? And that's what repentance is. This is what it means to repent. And I'm gonna leave you with this. Christians should be the greatest repenters on the planet. Should be the greatest repenters on the planet. Greatest repenters on the planet. Why? Why should we be the greatest repenters on the planet? Because it's not that Christians are better than non-Christians because a repenter says, I'm just like you. But the difference is, is the love, the goodness, the kindness, the gentleness of God has brought me to him and brought me not to pride, but to humility and I repent. And as I repent and as I put my faith in Jesus and as I trust in him, not only am I saying I'm sorry and I'm be broken over my sin, but guess what? I'm walking further and further away from it. That's what it means. That's what it is. And so what I wanna do today is just lead, lead us through repentance this morning, men. So if you guys just want to bow your heads and maybe even take a moment, we'll do, we're going to do a little group exercise today. And in this group exercise, I just want you to take a moment in your own heart to allow the Holy Spirit just to begin to reveal to you if there's any area in your life that you need to repent before the Lord. And I know you can't get everything, but the Lord will speak. And maybe the first area is that you don't trust him. Maybe the first area is Jesus, the first thing I need to repent of is that I haven't put my whole trust and whole faith in the cross, that I've been doing it on my own. That I've been leaning on my own works. Maybe you're coming from week one and your repentance is I'm in blatant sin. I am in ongoing love affair with sin. Maybe that's where you're at. If you're being honest right now before the Lord, there is just a reoccurring pattern of sin that I love and I do over and over again. And I take advantage of the cross. And I take advantage of the blood. Lord, I don't even know what to do, but I, I just, I'm gonna repent. I need your help to walk away from this because I don't even think I can. Maybe there's idols in your heart. There's something else that you adore, just something else that you just love a little more. Jesus, I wanna love you more. Maybe it's somebody you need to forgive or it's, you're holding a grudge. 
Somebody you need to release or let go of. Thank you, Jesus. So, Father, as a church, we repent. Together as a church, we repent corporately, we repent individually. Holy Spirit, will you lead us in righteousness? Will you lead us in holiness? Will you help us understand that the blood of Jesus is more valuable than our sin? Will you help us to see that the cross of Christ, the love that was, the blood that was shed, the love that was poured out on me, Lord, is so much more worthy than whatever it is that I'm looking to for satisfaction? Lord, will you build in me the fruits of righteousness and holiness? Come on, will you build in me the fruits of righteousness and holiness, the evidence of my salvation? Will you cause me not just to be a Sunday morning Christian, God, but every day of the week where may I live for you, may I breathe for you, may I go to work for you, may I parent for you, may I be married for you, may everything that I do be for Jesus. God, and will you raise up disciples at Inspire Church? Lord, that would just not define their Christianity off a political agenda, would not define their Christianity, Lord, off of their good works, but it would only be found in Christ and in the gospel. Lord, we love you. You are worthy of it all. And we give you all honor, we give you all glory, and we give you all praise. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. We love you. Find a connect this week. If not, we'll see you next Sunday. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash inspirechurches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.